Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Chris Rupke, let's bring in right now. The politeness is you don't eat your lunch until the speaker's done speaking. <laughs> That's so strange. And you're, it's so strange. But everyone else eats everyone lunch. Is, everyone is starving. Everyone if, wants to leave at that point after the up, speech. If you're up with a lot of people. Yeah, I've never understood yeah. that. <laughs> I've got to admit, I don't enjoy it because everybody else does start eating lunch. And whilst whoever it is, whether it's the chairman or the vice chair delivering the speech at the Economic Club in New York, all you hear is the cutlery, oh. the forks and knives mm. hitting the plates. Yeah, but we don't need our lunch. Well, First, good for you. Because we're... Uh, you're polite. Above the organist. Can you get to Mr. Rupp? Um, yeah, I'm, How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing trying. Okay, okay? I'm doing okay. Chris, what are you looking for from the vice chairman later today? Uh, well, he's, you know, it's kind of the Fed versus the markets at this point. Fed funds futures pretty much are discounting one and a half rate cuts by the December meeting. Uh, Euro dollar futures are looking for like three rate cuts by the end of next year. Yeah, but you really push against it. Come on, the market's totally well, the, the market, market totally disagrees the with market you knows and Richard Clarida. The market knows all. Yeah, come I on, think. Come on, Chris. It's I, I think irrational. the problem. Well, the the Fed messaging on this has been kind of messy, right? And they're going to ask Clarida about this because don't forget he's the guy who came out earlier this year and said. Uh, talked about the risk yeah. risk management style rate cuts in the 90s, where to me those weren't risk risk management style just in case rate cuts. Uh, they were done because we had a near miss with the okay. recession in 95. Clarence is going to talk as he talked in his conversation with me and as he spoke in his conversation to Michael McKee. Full disclosure, folks, McKee had a smarter uh, interview. He talks about solid economy. Define solid. Well, at the moment, uh, what, we're creating upwards of 200,000 jobs per month. We got a 3.6% low unemployment rate. Uh, we had 3.2% GDP. You know, that's kind of uh, rear view mirror stuff. But yeah. yeah, everything looks okay. I mean, look at consumer confidence. We used to think in the old days, the Fed would just Agreed. open. I got to admit. They would open stunning. the newspaper and say, what does the consumer think? And then vote accordingly, the Fed. And consumer, the consumer's reckoning of where current conditions are, it's the best since 2020. John Farrell, is PIMCO calling for rate cuts? Did that come up in their you know annual soiree? Or? Not something they're looking for immediately. Not something that came up yesterday. Not something they're looking for right now yeah. in the near term. Chris, what I think is interesting about consumer confidence is I don't see it in the hard data. It's not translating into improved economic activity at the consumer level. Why no, not, not yet, but we got to wait and see retail sales. Uh, one of the problems, I guess, is uh, uh, car and light truck sales. They keep going back and forth. They're like 17.4, then they're 16 and a half. Uh, we pretty much know for this cycle the consumer's not going to go out and buy a lot more cars. Uh, it's going to stick somewhere around 17 million annual rate. But no, I think you could look forward to retail sales picking up in the next couple of reports. Retail sales can pick up in the next couple of reports. Well, so you think it, you could it see, might have been a bit of a cold. It was kind of cold in May. 
right? There's a lot of seasonal summertime purchases. Right. Maybe those were delayed. But, you know, over the course of the summer, I think the okay. consumer has money. Yeah. Yeah, one more question, if we could. Yeah. You, do, you are the best at FedChat linked into full faith and credit charts. What is the three-month, 10-year difference in yield that spread everybody's talking about? It is inversion, like yeah. it was in the last 12 out of the 14 recessions or whatever. What does three months, 10 mean to Chris Rupke? Yeah, I mean, the, the crazy thing about the curve is that uh, the two-year, 10-year is not inverted. And most cycles, two-year, 10 years inverts. Then at the last minute, the three-month, 10-year So now it's inverts. flipped. What's that mean, bro? I don't know the markets are mispriced but right the, the three-month 10-year yield the markets, listen to you you sound in, like such an economist <laughs> it, it inverted it inverted last thursday on the market yeah. pmi thanks market for the plug there thank you mr rupke uh anyway the curve inverted last like thursday he, he did his own plug. and uh, and that <clears throat> means doom. Okay. that means recession so that's what we're working off it's going to take 10 year yields have to come up to like 3.37. Oh, go away. Or, or the curve's not going to invert. <laughs> Chris Rupke, It's going to stay inverted. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate I'm kidding. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. A really good briefing before Vice Chairman Claritas speak. Take a listen to what Scott Martha of PIMCO had to say about credit risk. Probably the riskiest credit market that we've ever had. And, you know, it's true when you look at both the, the size of it, the duration of it, and the quality aspects of it. So there's a big vulnerability there, as well as a probably the least liquid, uh, you know, bond market in terms of credit markets that we've had in a long period of time. Joel Levington joining us Stunning. now. Bloomberg Stunning. Intelligence Director of Credit Research. Joe. Probably the riskiest corporate credit market we've ever had. This was a catalyst for so much conversation yesterday after Scott said this. Let's get your thoughts and then we'll start to explore a little bit further. Your reaction. Well, I think he did a great job, John, as always the first place to start. But I think... Joel, don't. Come on, Joel. (laughs) (laughs) But I think beyond that, uh, you know, you are at a very interesting point in time because you have spreads that are still quite tight. Uh, you have very mixed data that's out there and very bifurcated feelings. Uh, for example, if you look internally at BI, you have people like Ira Jersey and Carl Riccadonna saying the second half is going to be very strong uh, and that yields should be going up, which if you're uh, a PM, you'd be, be playing that on the short end or maybe through high yield. Uh, but that there are other people that think that you're headed into a recession. And if that's the case, then you have a quite a different uh, place to, to, to be putting your money. What I thought was really interesting, speaking to Scott in a little bit more detail, was this comparison between now and potentially going into the mid-2000s, that kind of historic parallel. Not because we're about to go into recession in the here and now, but because maybe we're about to go through that period where the excesses build, the mistakes are made. Joe, what do you think about that? Does that idea resonate with you at all? Yeah, well, as a guy that follows Tesla, and I know we often talk about the 5.3% yeah. bond that's uh, now around uh, 9%. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I do think mistakes are being made. Uh, I guess uh, you're looking at WeWorks as another example of that coming to the market yesterday. And you kind of scratch oh, your head with these pre-cash flow, pre-EBITDA oh, businesses. We don't have time in the day. Uh, we need a long. <laughs> okay. We need a long show for that one, do we? I, I, I spent, folks. It's common belief that John and I party the moment the you know the moment the music comes up at 10 a.m. But actually, we're working through the day. And Bloomberg Intelligence, written up in Zero Hedge, had a tour de force on community-based adjusted EBITDA 
Help me with the WeWork bond offering in your interpretation of it, led by our real estate people. Sure. Uh, yeah, no, uh, Jeff Legenbaum did Jeff a great Legenbaum, job on that. excuse yeah. me. Um, and uh, what I would say is that uh, it's a great job of marketing, much, I think, in the, in the way a lot of these... Come on, pre- you're among adults here. We're not marketing. <laughs> should somebody step in? Should some institutional guys in a car in Topeka right now, should he step in and buy WeWork paper at what's a coupon? Uh, I think they're still determining uh, what the yeah, spread is. Yeah, well, give me a give me a give me a touch there. Six percent, uh, maybe, maybe. But I think with all of these credits, uh, whether it's an Uber or a Tesla or uh, a WeWorks, I think you have to look at it and say, do companies that don't generate cash flow, and we know that they're not going to for several years, can they support any sort of debt? And I think the answer is no. So I, I, I can't see why a PM wouldn't want to get involved with uh, any of those situations. Well, Joel, is no. it a healthier credit market now? Sorry to jump in, Tom. Oh, no, you bring up Tesla, and I think Tesla's Have a great point. Omelet. The growth story of Tesla was captured by the equity a couple of years back. It was reflected in the debt, and that was a big problem for a lot of people. Right. Several years later now, it was two summers ago, it was August 2017, when that 2025 note came to market. A couple of years later, can you sit here and say definitively that this is a healthier credit market, that we are no longer doing those silly things, where we reflect the growth story that should be captured by equity, but it's also captured in the debt market? No, I don't. I don't think we can, John. I mean, in the case of Tesla, I think we can say that more clearly today than it was two years ago when we were ranting on that. But if you look at WeWorks, it's the same basic story, right? Where people are looking at at uh, hypothetical market valuations of of the company and saying, well, it deserves to trade at a certain place when we know that yeah. it's going to be multiple years before it gets anywhere close to generating any sort of cash flow. Well, John Levinson. Joel, thank you. You have to come back when you figure out community-adjusted EBITDA. I still don't understand that. I still don't understand that. And every time it gets mentioned, I think people are joking, I, I, Joel, but it's not a joke, is it? It's Bloomberg ridiculous. Bloomberg Intelligence and what they, Joel and, and the others, and Mr. Langbaum, what the, he did yesterday on WeWork was just a tour de force. It was just brilliant. Reach out Absolutely to Joel and the team. Joel Levington, Bloomberg Intelligence thank Director of Credit Research. Meredith Sumter joins us right now, and this is important. She writes brilliant notes for Eurasia Group, and as with some of our guests, not all of our guests, is not only expert on China, but understands not the King's English, but uh, maybe President Xi's uh, Mandarin. Uh, I was chastised this morning by one of our listeners in Mayfair because I said Chinese language instead of Mandarin as well. So I've, I've been practicing, Meredith. Zhou is weak. Neon is year. Did I get that right? Neon. Am I doing okay? Close. Close I'm close. Enough. Two words a day. We do, we do Mandarin lessons on. We're Bloomberg doing Mandarin. Radio like, you know, what do you want? We're Meredith Sumter. Good luck, Meredith. Meredith, the president is scheduled to speak here this morning. He's on his way to Colorado to the United States Air Force Academy, Colorado Springs. And how do they interpret in the Chinese language? the Trump bluster, the Trump discourse, how does that translate into Mandarin? Well, actually, originally, uh, before I would say this latest escalation in tariffs and also the, the move to place Huawei on the entity list, which really is 
a game changer for Beijing. I would say that the Trump was actually somewhat popular with the Chinese people. Um, they see him as tough and as standing up for U.S. interests. But it's also safe to say that that the U.S. president has now crossed a line with the Chinese. And as we were speaking earlier, Tom, we are watching very closely a lessening of moderation on the Chinese side and an uptick in nationalism that is not just in propaganda, but you're also beginning to see uh, a sense from the Chinese people on Weibo and other sort of social media channels that they, they're beginning to feel like they're being bullied and they're not listening to the viable concerns on the U.S. side that this economic relationship between the two, the world's two largest economies needs to be rebalanced and rejiggered for the 21st century. A lot of people trying to understand what that means for economic activity within the country, Meredith, and whether there could be a boycott of U.S. products and services. What's your read of that situation at the moment? I think there's certainly an increasing risk of that. Uh, and, and really, I think watching what happens with Huawei is the the key here. It's really the, the focal point that the Chinese are are using to to gauge uh, U.S. intent towards China. So if Huawei is essentially brought to its knees in a way that it will no longer be a successful global Chinese telecommunications company, you can expect that Beijing itself will find ways to reciprocate, but uh, even more interestingly, watch what the public does, uh, because the, the risk here, not only for the U.S., but also for Beijing, uh, is that if sentiment becomes nationalist to the point where Beijing can no longer control that, then it goes from Beijing being able to finally dial up or dial down escalation with the U.S., according to its plan, to Beijing no longer being in full control of how its own people, how the Chinese people are responding. So the, the risk to um, high-profile U.S. companies in China, I would say, is, is certainly on the rise. Well, how close do you think we are to that tipping point, Meredith? Well, so the with Huawei, the U.S. issued a 90-day temporary general license, but already we're beginning to see strains on that company with um, other uh, its global trading partners, its global um, um, uh, business partners are beginning to to step away from that company. Uh, so, what to watch now uh, between now and say the G20 crucially is whether or not there is any back channel that is opened or even a front channel between Trump and Xi to do something about Huawei, to, to come to a deal with Huawei. Uh, and absent that, we're unlikely to see uh, a productive or constructive conversation happen at the G20 uh, in Osaka at, at the end of June. That's the last best chance yeah. for both sides to avert an onward escalation from here. What is the calculus right now between the leader of China and his Communist Party? I'm going to use the word Politburo as an amateur, but what is the dynamic you see among the leadership of China? I know there's a huge mystery there, Meredith, but is there something new? Surprise. Uh, really, Huawei was the the nuclear option. Yeah, exactly. I think they, they expected that there would be onward pressure from from President Trump, and yeah, uh, it, I would say that that the way that the U.S. government has come out against Huawei by placing the company on its entity list, in addition to the executive order. Uh, has really caught Beijing unaware. And it, it took them several days to sort of collect their thoughts and, and first and foremost gauge what has to be done to save that company 
and then what is politically feasible for Xi Jinping to do. So what we're hearing is that the Chinese are basically telling Washington, we're not interested in talking at all about trade or about economic relations with you until the mm-hmm. Huawei issue is resolved. And to my knowledge, um, there is at this point no meeting between Trump and Xi officially scheduled for G20 and no active communication channel between the two on a way forward with either Huawei or uh, with the broader sort of economic relationship. Is what you're discussing priced in the markets? I know that's not a Eurasia Group question, but do you perceive that the Western zeitgeist is up to speed with Eurasia Group's caution? No. No. I think systematically we've seen markets sort of underbake the risk that we see moving forward in this relationship. Meredith, it's been really interesting to see how financial markets respond, how investors react to commentary and state media. I think to a certain degree, and you can define to what extent, the perception of China's stance in this trade dispute is being shaped almost exclusively at the moment by commentary and state media. Do you think that gives us an accurate picture of what is actually happening in Beijing? That's a fascinating question here. Um, and I would say that that broadly accurate, probably. Uh, but key here is that uh, in the past, Beijing would use its state media to focus its messaging on its domestic population. Yeah. And they used a separate channel to message to the global audience. But now that you have so many of us, non, non-Chinese, who are paying attention to, to um, state propaganda and state media, yeah. we are reading messages that Beijing might be intending for a domestic okay. audience, not a global audience. And there's a key difference there. Meredith, help me here. This is really important. I'm taking uh, uh, introductory Chinese with Anthony from Sparta. Here we and go. here's my first sentence, Meredith. Help me with the pronunciation. Wo Jutian Fanglu Itian Jia, which is I took a day off yesterday. <laughs> Did I, Wo is I, right? Wo, yeah. Wo? Cl- close enough, yes. Wo? Wo. War? War. Tom, you and I, we're, we're going to work on tones together. We're going to have some this. great dumplings. Well, I did this at a bar in Shanghai with cash flow, and I flunked. Every time I <laughs> When miss- you read Chinese, it sounds like you're speaking French. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, I was in the French Quarter when um, we did shots. Every time I mispronounced the word. You speak Mandarin with a French accent. Meredith Sumter, we're going to let you move Meredith, just run. We break up. Just <laughs> run, Meredith. Just, just put run. the fun down and run. Wo Jutian Fangli Tian Jia. I took a day off yesterday. What a great first sentence for learning Chinese. That's the phone getting slammed down by Meredith, Meredith Sumter. She is so good. I, I, folks, in I, Washington. I can't say enough on the briefing notes from Eurasia Group on China. They've been just brilliant. This is a joy and this is odd. As you know, there are 4,700 people running for president of the Democratic uh, Party and it is good to have someone darken the door who's a little bit different. As all of you know, whatever your political persuasion, uh, there is a small matter that Democrats have to take territory and votes where the Republicans live. The Cook Report puts Montana at a R plus 11 wall-to-wall Trumpites from Bozeman to Grizzly Park, whatever it's called up there on the northern border. The governor of Montana joins us now. Stephen Bullock who is a really interesting guy 
because it's so out of touch. Here you are in your state of the state a few years ago. We need each other if we are going to make progress. You don't have a chance. How are you, you going to run for president? How are you going to gain traction within this, this vast Democratic Party in a polarized time? How do you get the message across? Governor? You know, and Tom, first, thanks for having me, Tom and Paul. But it is a polarized time. Look, I'm the only one in this field that actually won in a Trump state. In 2000, Thank you. In 2016, uh, Donald Trump took Montana by 21 points. I won by four, 25 to 30% of my voters voted for Donald Trump. If we don't win back some of the places that we lost in 2016, this guy's going to be president. But I've also, my legislature's 60% Republican. And we've been able to do everything from have a fair tax system to investing in education, getting health care for 100,000 Montanans through Medicaid expansion. And if we don't actually, you know, the whole goal of this isn't just to win, it's actually okay. to govern. Montana State University in Bozeman, they're the only place in Montana where there are socialists. We know that. I mean, it's, it's to the left. Of, it's, they, they have the courses like Kami 302. Okay, well, how do you respond to the democratic socialists that won't listen to Southwest Pennsylvania or for Montana uh, across the entire state. How yeah. do you respond to it? Yeah, look, look, I am a capitalist, but I think the capitalist system doesn't always work right now. When tax laws are being written, when a senator literally says we have to do this to make our donors happy, or we can't even talk about climate change anymore because the outside influence of dollars. We have to fix some things, but that doesn't mean necessarily abandoning what our country's always been founded on. Well, Governor, in 2018, what we saw, certainly in the congressional elections on the Democratic side, that we took the House, but very much moved to the left for the Democrats. Do you think a centrist, a la a Bill Clinton, can win, A, the primary, and B, the general election? Sure, and look, I'm in many ways, when it comes to health care and getting actually things done, when it comes to getting dark money out of our elections, I'd say I'm more progressive than anybody else, or as progressive as anybody else in the field when it comes to actual accomplishments. I'm also, you know, as a governor, I've had to balance a budget. So there are some conservative elements where I'll look at a tax cut and say, well, are we really putting this on our kids and grandkids? Right. Or I'll look at plans and say, well, how are we going to pay for it? I think what most folks want and even Democrats want is somebody that can win and then start getting things done. And the values of everybody ought to have access to health care. Education ought to be affordable. Those same values are, I think, what both unites the Democratic Party, but is transcends beyond and, that. And how did you get Trump votes in Montana? You don't look Republican. You don't, you don't walk Republican. Your entourage is not Republican. How did you get, what did you do in the diner? You know, Fox News goes out to the diner and does a touchy-feely thing. What did you do to the diner 200 miles out west of Bozeman to get that Trump vote? Yeah, and first of all, I actually show up at the diner. And not, you know, we're getting to the point where I don't have the luxury of just going to pockets of blue in Montana and expecting folks to win. I listen. I try to understand where they are. Now, folks don't agree with me on every issue. But if I can turn around and say healthcare is important for a community because if we lose that rural hospital, that town's gone. Then they'll get over okay. this issue of Obamacare. Does policy work? I mean, I mean. Uh, Paul Sweeney mentions President Clinton, the ultimate policy wonk of all time, and yet he'd always go back to the visceral to get things done. Are, are Democratic candidates now over-policying 
versus talking to the emotion and the resonance that we heard from President Obama and President Trump? Well, I think that the emotion and the values, everyone, and that's Democrats, our Republicans, want to save community. They want a roof over their head. They don't want to have economic anxiety. You know, they want a decent job. They want good public schools, clean air, clean water. The belief you can do better for your kids and grandkids than yourself. And I think that transcends both the Democratic Party, but it also transcends a lot of voters that ought to be with us along the way if they're really voting their economic or their health care or their educational interests. So, Governor, I know this is uh, it's beginning of a long process for you and for the other 20-some-odd candidates uh, for the Democratic primary. How do you get how do you stand out and particularly against, you know, someone who has a better name recognition, whether it be a Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders? It's Bloomberg Radio. That's what's going to change it all for me, Paul. No, that that and look, it is still even a field of 37 or 112 or 23, you know, the early states are going to sort out things. So. I think that in those early states, me showing up, making those connections along the way. Let's go back four years ago. Scott Walker was polling number one. Jeb Bush was polling number two. So there's a lot of time to make the case of that we need to not only bring out our base, but also bring some of these voters back. We need to get to the point where we can actually get things done. And we got to get Washington, D.C. working for us. Which state matters for you? The early states. Which one's really the one you're focused on? Or is this, is this, did I ask a rude question? Oh, no, not, not, <laughs> not at all. Good. And I'm only two weeks in because my legislature was still going on and had to get my job done. But I've Oh, you made... had like a real job, unlike <laughs> the, the rest of them, right? Yeah. Are you behind? My, that's, I make a joke about it, but do you feel like you're behind in the campaigning? That's sick. Where are we? Yeah, we well, 2019. Well, that is it. Yeah, in some <clears throat> respects, because people are already saying, well, the polling's here and the numbers are here. But I did have... You know, if I had jumped in two months ago when my legislature was still going on, I wouldn't have been able to freeze college tuition. I wouldn't have been able to get foreign money out of our elections. Wait, so, but you froze college tuition? I've in- frozen college tuition six of my eight years. We have the fourth lowest tuition fees in the nation. That's not by starving our universities. That's by putting additional state dollars into the system. And the way I put so it. So can you like talk to the other four institutions Paul and I are dealing with here? And <laughs> right. get, us, <laughs> get us Bullock tuition freezes. Yeah. What's the pixie dust he has, Paul? How about that neighboring, the neighboring state of Colorado? I well, just wrote a big check to the university. Yeah, and, it, and part of that when I was pitching that legislature, I said, you increase college tuition, that's a tax on about 40,000 Montanans, right? Folks that okay. actually need that. So, but I don't think it's too late. I've, uh, couple weeks in, I've made a number of trips to Iowa. I was in New Hampshire before uh, I announced, long before I was in South Carolina. Yeah. So that's where I'll start. Who's your running mate? I mean, let's cut to the chase. Here. You <laughs> picked a running mate to get out front of everybody. It's a little early for that, Tom. But it's no, look, little... I want somebody okay, next that can Tuesday. <laughs> compliment uh, my skills and values, have a different life experience, and step in if anything ever happened to me. And there's a lot of good folks in the field, but I think it's a little okay. early to figure that one so out. So we like to wrap up our interviews. We're like, what did we learn in this interview? Steve Bullock froze tuition. Okay, thank you. <laughs> the 24th governor of the state of Montana. Uh, we'll be hearing much more, I'm sure, about uh, Governor Bullock here uh, in the coming days. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide 
I'm Bloomberg Radio.